0: and the story goes on, okay. Today's talk is entitled, The Perspective of an Ass. But which one? The Moabite king, the sorcerer, the donkey, or me? You'll have to listen carefully to decide. Lord, fill my mouth with good stuff and shut it when I've said enough, amen. From the beginning, God's people have been opposed by those who feel threatened by our very existence. Opposition can come from earthly sources, governments, kings, people. But if we believe scripture, opposition can also be spiritual, from the spirit realm. Today, of course, there are many, many parts of the world where to be Christian is extremely dangerous. Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, Nigeria, Pakistan, India. In some of these countries, just to be Christian or to convert to Christianity is a crime, and many people live in fear of their lives. Ten years ago, I went to India and sat in a house with uh, with a dirt floor of a wonderful man named Pastor Lazarus, who indulged me with a friendly arm wrestle. Um, He built his church physically. in a field, and the town has grown around it, and it's an extremist Hindu area. And he has been blockaded from going to his church, he has been physically stoned, and when Gideon representatives came the year before to donate Bibles, they themselves were beaten, and their Bibles ripped up, someone I met. Even in Australia, of course, Christians, we can feel the pressure, can't we? We can sometimes feel like meerkats, you know? just on the lookout for attack, just always looking. Or turtles, head drawn in, don't say anything, right? Because now in Australia, you'll know, to be radical is to be conservative. The conservatives, those who hold conservative positions, they're the radicals, they're the threats. And we fear not just being made fun of but being censored for what we say, for the views we hold, even for the people we associate with. And it can sometimes feel or be hard not to feel like we're on the losing team. So what assurance do we have that we are not on the losing team? What assurance will God give us that he will preserve his people? What encouragement is there that we just won't dwindle in numbers and over decades just die out? What assurance is there that 200 years from now, assuming the Lord doesn't come, churches in Australia won't just be historical footnotes in Australian museums without any real presence anywhere? Well, throughout Numbers, we've been journeying with Israel as they move through the desert to the Promised Land. Numbers is all about the spiritual pilgrimage of God's people, and up until now, the book has focused Entirely on matters within the Israelite camp, there's grumblings, there's rebellions, there's punishments, discipline. These were forces within the Israelite camp that threatened their survival. But today we have a different perspective. Today the camera pans back from those little intricacies in that scene. And we are lifted up high onto a mountain plateau above the Israelite camp to forces outside of God's people who look down upon God's people and plot their destruction. So this is an entirely new perspective which we're given access to, but the Israelites aren't given access to it. They're ignorant what happens of what happens in these chapters. We see it and God records it for us, so we will see it. And we're confronted with the earthly opposition against them in the form of Balak, a Moabite king, And also the very real spiritual opposition against them in the form of Balaam, a sorcerer, who is employed to curse them. So we have earthly powers and spiritual powers. But also in this story, we have God himself. And his all-powerful determination to bring blessing to his people. And that's what shines forth. Okay, so these chapters are looking at the long-term fate of God's people as a whole. It's a different focus from the issue of a person's individual salvation. That's what we covered last week when people individually had to turn and look to the bronze snake raised up on the pole so that they individually could be saved. All right, today we're panning back. We're looking at the question of assurance for God's people as a larger group in the face of the earthly and spiritual forces against them. And we pick up the story... With God having brought his people to the borders of the promised land, okay, and there they are, they're spread out, they're too vast to count, they're as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore, and they have been victorious, they've just defeated Sihon and Og, two Amorite kings, and they have wiped out their armies, Uh, they didn't seek this battle, they asked permission to go through their territory, and they weren't allowed, and they were confronted with their armies and the Lord prevailed. This has made the rest of the kings around about very nervous and our story zooms in on one such king, Balak, the king of the Moabites. Balak, son of Zippor, saw that all that Israel had done to the Amorites and Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. And the Moabites said to the elders of Midian, that's the nation further south, This horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So what's a pagan, powerful king going to do when he's threatened by a people more numerous than he with the God of gods on their side? He knows he can't win by a military fight. That's failed with Sihon and Og, it failed with Pharaoh. He can't do that. So he realizes the only chance he has is to battle fire or to fight fire with fire he turns to spiritual warfare, to sorcery. Actually, sorry, that wasn't the only chance that he had. He could have actually welcomed them and blessed them and received blessing back. That would have been a much better option, but he sees them as a threat, and so he resorts now to sorcery. He sends messengers 900 miles north to the end of the Euphrates River to summon the most powerful seer in the land, Balaam, He is the sorcerer of international fame. And Balaam is to come and put a curse on Israel so that he could twist God's divine hand against Israel. Now, you might think, we kind of believe in science. What is this blessing and curse thing? Well, if you read the first three chapters of the Bible, you'll see that blessing and cursing in God's universe is actually a really big deal. And for those that God gives the authority to bless or curse, it seems to work, and it appears that Balaam, the pagan sorcerer, is such a man, and Balak, the king of Moab, knows it. And so he calls Balaam and says, come and put a curse on the Israelites because they're too powerful for me. Perhaps then I'll be able to defeat them and drive them out of the country. For I know that those you bless are blessed, and those you curse are cursed. This is high-stakes spiritual warfare. It's not a laughable strategy, right? What follows this request are six scenes carefully written. In the first three, God deals with Balaam, the reckless sorcerer, and in the next three, he deals with Balak, the determined ruler. And here, if you like, are the two enemies of God's people, earthly rulers, who are determined to destroy, sorry, the earthly rulers, they're on this side, determined to destroy God's people, and spiritual powers employed to curse God's people. Both join forces here in this story to wipe them out. But of course, we know the outcome before we begin because they are fighting the Lord. He's going to win. How is he going to win? How does God deal with these enemy forces? Well, we start with the spiritual force, with Balaam. Three scenes. Each scene has a surprise. Scene one. The elders of Moab and Midian deliver to Balaam Balak's request for him to come and curse Israel. But the surprise is Balaam saying, well, okay, but I'll, I'll, I'll bring back the answer the Lord gives me. Very strange response from a pagan sorcerer, right? And then next surprise, the Lord, speaks, the Lord himself speaks with Balaam. And the message the Lord says is don't go with him. You must not put a curse on those people because they're blessed. God's made a commitment to bless Israel. This commitment cannot be overthrown. So Balaam goes back to Balak's messengers and says, no deal, go home. God has not said that I can go with you. He's refused. He's refused. Scene two. Balak, the king, not to be outdone, he ups the ante and he sends more messengers back to Balaam, more impressive than the first mob, and now he throws in a bribe. I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. Now come and curse them. Balaam says, guys, even if Balak gave me his palace filled with silver and gold, I can't do anything beyond the command of the Lord, my God. My God. That's another surprise. Balaam says the Lord is his God. How? This raises a thousand questions. No explanation, right? We are just left hanging. But to us, Balaam seems like a good guy. So Balaam says, look, stay here and I'll find out what the Lord will tell me. And next surprise, now the Lord says to Balaam, well, since these men have come to summon you, go, but only do what I tell you. So first, don't go, now do go. Okay, so, scene three. Balaam gets up at first light, he saddles his donkey, he goes with the princes of Moab, as God has told him to. But then, Numbers 22, verse 22, we're very puzzled to read, God was very angry when he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in his way to oppose him. So. First the Lord says don't go, then he says yes go, Balaam goes, and then the Lord is angry when he goes. (laughs) And we're thinking poor Balaam, God is being very changeable here. Why should God be so angry at Balaam for Balaam doing what God told him to do? Why indeed? Go right to the source and ask the horse. He'll give you the answer that you endorse. He's always on a steady course. Talk to Mr. Ed. If you didn't understand that, that's because you're born too, too late. <laughs> ask someone with no hair, they will fill you in. Okay. The donkey on which Balaam is riding sees the angel of the Lord in the middle of the road with drawn sword and sensibly veers off the road into the field. Whack, whack, whack! Balaam beats the donkey back onto the road. And then the, next, the angel stands in a narrow path between two walled vineyards. The donkey sees the angel again, with nowhere to go, crushes Balaam's foot against the wall. Ah, whack, whack, whack! The donkey, poor donkey, gets another beating. Now the angel of the Lord moves on ahead and stands in an even narrower place. What is a donkey to do? When she sees the angel of the Lord, she now lies down flat under Balaam. (laughs) This is very, very funny. This is hilarious. Here is Balaam, the mighty seer of international fame, who has kings begging for his services. The great Balaam, with all his power to bless or to curse. Here is the great hope of Moab, leading the way with a Moabite princes behind him on this all-important international mission. Here's this spiritual giant, the fate of the nations in his hands, and he's stopped in his tracks by donkey. It's very, very funny. Now, no doubt, when the donkey first veered off the road, Balaam was embarrassed. I'll show her who's in charge. Whack, whack, whack. Oh, so powerful, so much the man. No doubt, he was then humiliated when the donkey crushed his foot because the donkey could see the angel. But here's this man of insight, stupid donkey, whack, whack, whack. Astounding spiritual insight, isn't it really? And now he's the third time, this powerful, perceptive man. He just totally loses it. He loses it, he resorts again to violence, why not? It hasn't worked the last two times, I'll try it again. Whack, 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 He's so lost it that when the Lord opens the donkey's mouth and Balaam hears her speak, Balaam doesn't say, oh, that's odd, a talking donkey. He just carries right on, he continues the conversation right in front of all the Moabite princes because what she really needs is a good piece of his mind. You've made a fool out of me. If I'd have a sword, I'd kill you right now. Lol. Okay, the donkey responds, am I not your own donkey, which you've always ridden? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? Here's the one with sense, the one with control, the one with respect. She is the wise one, not Balaam. And then the Lord, he opens Balaam's eyes, right? And now he sees, he sees the angel standing there, the angel standing there with his sword drawn, and now he falls face down like the donkey. We'd been wondering, why was God so against Balaam going? Why so insistent that Balaam keep to the script, say only what I say? Why does the angel now stand in Balaam's way? Listen carefully. The angel says, I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. Had the donkey not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now. Now we're reevaluating Balaam. He'd given all the right outward signs. He had the right words. He even called the Lord his God. Was his humility genuine? Or was he a cunning manipulator, a fake who thought that he could play the Lord off against him? You know, God's no fool. He sees right to the heart and he exposes the motives of Balaam's heart. Balaam seemed loyal and devoted, but in his heart, what's the assessment? He is reckless. Yes, he said that he'd only say what God told him to, but in his heart, that wasn't his intention. Why? Because of greed. The letter of Jude describes Balaam's error as rushing into profit. He wanted the money. He wanted the retainer. And yes, he was gonna speak in the name of the Lord, but he had no intention of saying what God said if what he had to say was gonna stop him getting paid. He was looking after number one, and number one, So Balaam wasn't the Lord, because number one was money. Balaam's God was money. And so now we rewind. When Balaam had said, I can only say what the Lord tells me, well, that was a ploy. That must have been a ploy um, to increase the retainer. He wasn't operating out of fear of the Lord. But now he's face-to-face, correction, he's face-to-toe, because he's lying down, with the angel with a drawn sword, he has been halted by a talking ass, and it's clear who the ass really is. He sees his foolishness, he admits his sin before God, and for a moment or a few moments, he fears the Lord. The Lord says, go, but only say what I tell you. And from here on he goes, because at least for now, he's a changed man. Having dealt with Balaam, the next three scenes, and where God turns his attention to Balak, the determined ruler. These are much briefer. Okay, each of the scenes has the same pattern, so there's a vantage point. Balak, Balak, the king, takes Balaam, the sorcerer, to a high point from which they can look down on the people of Israel. So there's a vantage point, then there's an offering. Balak and Balaam build seven altars on which they offer seven rams and seven bulls. And then there's a message. God gives a message or an oracle to Balaam, which Balaam then delivers to Balak. And then in each scene, there's an objection. Balak objects to the oracle and Balaam says, well, didn't I tell you I can only say what the Lord says? And then Balak tries again and moves Balaam to a different spot and we move on to the next scene. From the repetition in these scenes, what comes out is just how determined Balak, the king, is to have Israel cursed. He doesn't stop once. He just keeps going and going and going. He's determined. But what also becomes clear is that the Lord God is even more determined in his commitment to bless Israel. In the first oracle, Balaam says, how can I curse those whom God has not cursed? God has blessed them, and Balaam says, guess what, I want to be one of them. (laughs) Balak says, I brought you out here to curse, but you've done nothing but bless Israel. In the second oracle, Balaam says, look, God isn't changeable, He's not a man that he should lie or change his mind. When he makes a promise, he carries it through. I have received a command to bless. He has blessed. I can't change it. God is with them. What can I do? Balak says, look, chum, if you've decided that you're not going to curse them, then for goodness sake, don't make matters worse by blessing them. In the third, the spirit of the Lord comes on Balaam, the pagan sorcerer, and Balaam Blesses Israel. He does what Balak the king had asked him not to do. Their king will be exalted, their kingdom will devour hostile nations. May those you bless be blessed, and may those you curse be cursed. In other words, from now on, the nations of the world will themselves be either blessed or cursed, depending on their response to God's people, Israel. This is how it's always been, actually. Do you remember? that topic, topic sort of sentence promise in the Bible in Genesis chapter 12 verses one to three where God speaks to Abram and says, Abram, he picks him out, sort of this you know, pagan sun worshiper in Iraq and says, guess what? Through you I'm going to bring blessing to the world. I'm gonna make you into a great nation. And in fact, all the nations of the world will be blessed through you, and whoever blesses you, I will bless, and whoever curses you, I will curse. This is God's blueprint for his plan to overturn the effects of sin and the curse that came into the world in Genesis 3. He's got a plan to bring blessing, which is the opposite to curse. And we see it reiterated here in this third oracle. Okay. Now before it was Balaam who lost it, of course now it's Balak's turn. He said, I summoned you to curse my enemies, but you've blessed them these three times. Now leave it once and go home. And Balak, like a true prophet, says, Did I not tell your messengers that even if you were to give me your palace filled with silver and gold, I can only ever say what the Lord says? And so Balak, the determined ruler, is overruled by the determined ruler, the Lord God who is massively determined to bring blessing instead of curse upon his people. Now that in the story, that's, what, that's how spiritual warfare is won. It's by the Lord whose determination is to bring blessing, not curse. That's why God's collective people are not destroyed. Not because they're, they're sinless. Not because there are people who trusted the Lord wholeheartedly. The focus is not on them in this story. The focus is on the Lord, His unshakable resolve to bring blessing instead of curse. And because God doesn't change, that's how we know that God's people in the New Testament era, the church, will survive and will grow. Because God is determined to bless. Now we say, but what of today's enemies against Christ's people around the world? What of militant Islam? which is reaping such a problem in Africa? What about dictatorships? What about our whole godless culture which corrupts the church and compromises our own allegiance to Christ? You know, we swim in this godless soup, this this culture that we're in and we imbibe its values. What of the spiritual forces we can't see behind the forces we can see? What of Satan, you know, who's determined to wage war against Christ's people? Will God show the same determination for his church today as his people in the Old Testament times? What can we glean from this story for us? Okay, the answer comes in Balaam's final word of prophecy. Before Balaam left Balak, the spirit is still on him, and he gives one final fourth oracle in chapter four, verse 24, verse 17 and following. Not about Israel, not about the collective people, but about a solitary person, a singular figure, who will appear in time future to them. Someone from the heavens, he's described as a star. And at the same time, a ruler who will come from and rise from within Israel. Who is this person? This ruler will crush the foreheads of all of God's enemies, whether they seem eternal like the Amalekites who were the first of the nations, or they seem impregnable like the Kenites who hid in the caves, or whether they seem to be the most powerful of all, the ancient serpent, the Satan. And I say this because way back in Genesis 3, God promised that one would come from Eve who would crush the head of the serpent. And here in Numbers 24, we are told this coming ruler from Israel will crush the foreheads of his enemies. The language is too close to be incidental. This ruler will be the one who will defeat and overpower Satan. Satan. What is our ultimate assurance of the survival of God's people? Well, God's determination to to bring blessing rather than curse, despite the opposition against us. What What is our ultimate assurance that the church will survive? Because that determination in the Lord issues forth in the coming of a ruler from Israel, the one who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What is our assurance that God's people can never be cursed? Because God's determination led to this ruler becoming a curse for us when he died. And in doing so, he took from Satan his power to curse us before God because he took our punishment. And then through his resurrection, he assures us of blessing because he will return and will crush every last enemy under his feet. What is our ultimate assurance of making it? It's not a what, it's a who. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is our assurance that we are on the winning team. He is our champion in the spiritual warfare arena. He's the one who's defeated Satan. We think, well, hang on, Satan's still alive. How can he be defeated if he's not dead? He's defeated because at the cross, Jesus took away Satan's power to accuse those whom he's died for. And in doing so, Satan was cast out of heaven. Jesus drove him out to earth. So, how do we get a perspective on spiritual warfare? Well, we need to know our enemy. Now, we need to know that Satan is furious. He's like a roaring lion with its teeth pulled, he's angry furious he might give you a good gumming but he can't kill you right but he'll use every power he has temptation lies anything to distract us from christ he's determined but he's defeated satan knows it's only a matter of time before he himself is thrown into the lake of fire we need to know our enemy we need to know the lord you know sometimes i meet christians with star wars theology They think the battle between Christ and Satan is like the battle between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader, sort of an equal battle between light and darkness with the outcome undecided. And not surprising, those those are the Christians who are really afraid of demons, even if they have Christ. We need to know our Lord, 1 John chapter four, verse four. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Okay? It's not an equal battle. But also what this story highlights is that even greater than the spiritual forces against us is God's massive determination to bless us, which he's already done in Christ. Paul grasped this in Ephesus, which was a pagan culture full of magic and fear. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. That's where it counts, right? with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Christ himself assures us of spiritual victory. He's already won. And the key this is the key to thinking through what it means for us to engage in spiritual warfare. It's not just us fighting, it's Jesus who's fought for us. After he died, Jesus rose and ascended and then was seated at the very highest place in the seat of Ultimate spiritual authority in the heavenly realms. Paul says, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. Satan, for whatever authority he has, he has nothing on Jesus. But look at verse 22 the purpose of Jesus being seated where he is is for us, for the church. Jesus is seated at the highest place for us. But it gets better because it's not just Jesus who's seated up there, we are as well. Spiritually speaking, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms and given where he is, there is no safer place for us to be. So given that the outcome is assured, what does it mean to engage in spiritual warfare? If Jesus is already one and we are in him and he in us, how do we do it? Well, what we do is we put on Christ. You go to the classic spiritual warfare passage in Ephesians six. We read about the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth and the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith, right? What we forget is that all these things speak to us of Jesus himself. So putting on the helmet of salvation is to remember and take on board that Christ has already saved you through his death. You put it on. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness is not to put on our righteousness, which is weak, right? It's to put on Christ's, which is strong, and his righteousness becomes ours through faith. That's the gospel, isn't it? God declares sinners right before him because of Christ's righteousness, which becomes ours when we believe in him. Putting on the belt of truth is to put on the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is Lord of all, and he has saved us through the cross. We are his, and he is ours. The shield of faith is to believe all this, and that just extinguishes Satan's fiery darts The sword of the spirit, the word of God, is is us using the word of God, which is proclaiming Christ the victor. And you can do this whenever you're tempted, whenever you're afraid, whenever you're doubt, whenever you're praying. You engage in spiritual warfare when you remember and give thanks to God for Christ and where you stand before God because of him. Okay. Well, this has been big. Let me finish Because God was determined to bring us blessing, not curse, we can be confident. There's no spiritual force or earthly opposition that can curse those whom God has determined to bless through the ruler who's come out of Israel. And his name is Jesus. Father in heaven, thank you for this wonderful passage which speaks to us as spiritual warfare and spiritual assurance. And we thank you, Father, that we are on solid ground in Christ. No safer place to be. So help us, we pray, um, in the next 12 months to engage in warfare, spiritually speaking, holding to Christ as we seek to claim new ground for the kingdom of God. We know there'll be opposition, but help us to be strong in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.